Welcome to Supreme Myths. I'm very excited today to have as my guest Andrew Seidel, who um, is the works for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is the author of two great books. One book is The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, and even though that book is a few years old, could not be more timely, unfortunately. <laughs> His second book, which is very recent, <clears throat> excuse me, which I should, sorry, <clears throat> it's going to be that kind of um, podcast today. I have a little frog in my throat. I have to disclaim that I uh, blurbed the back of this book because I think it's so good. <clears throat> American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. Again, could not be more timely. He uh, got his uh, undergraduate at Tulane, his JD at Tulane. He has an LLM from the University of Denver. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. So I want to add a disclaimer or put in a disclaimer to this podcast for my listeners um, who <clears throat> know that I generally, over the 70-so episodes, I've often tried to have people on with whom I disagree because I think that's just more interesting. I learn more when I have people on who I really disagree with. And even when I have people I, I agree with on, I try to find some areas of disagreement just to make it more interesting um, for the audience and to get both sides in. I want to say at the outset that Andrew is doing work that I think is unbelievably important. We're going to agree on 98%, and this is going to sound more like a rally than the usual Supreme Myths give and take, but that's because I feel so strongly about these issues, and I know Andrew does too. So let's begin right here. Um, why did you write your book? What's the, the most recent book, and what's the main thesis of the book? Well, I wrote American Crusade because I've been in the trenches for 10 years, you know, on the front lines of fighting religious freedom battles and state church separation battles. And I feel like I have a better understanding than a lot of folks do. And that there's a lot of misinformation and even disinformation floating out there about these cases. And that is because, and this is the thesis, there is a well-funded, powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations and judges that are working to weaponize the First Amendment, weaponize religious freedom. And I mean that quite literally. They are trying to turn the protection of religious freedom that we are all supposed to enjoy into a weapon of Christian privilege for the few. Uh, and this has been a deliberate crusade that's been remorselessly waged for about a decade uh, with the groundwork laid for, for several decades prior to that. How much do you think Leonard Leo of the Federal Society is behind that? I mean, I think I think Leo played a, an enormous role in this. I, there's there's very little doubt in my mind. He is universally recognized as the man who orchestrated the, the hostile takeover of the Supreme Court. You know, one former employee described Leo's mission like this. He said, Leo figured out 20 years ago that conservatives have lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception, conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed, so they needed to stack the courts. So just pull, I mean, we got we really got to appreciate that, right? They're they're admitting the anti-democratic <laughs> goal here, and we're going to stack the judiciary to ensure that uh, the will of the majority doesn't prevail on these really important issues. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but Leo's job was described by another uh, colleague as the monitor of the various judicial nominees' ideological purity. Wow. Right. So, I mean, and that to me is just so telling. So and we know he's responsible for the confirmation of Roberts, 
Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Uh, we know that Clarence Thomas is a longtime friend of his and was also a member of the Federalist Society, just as those other five were. So, I mean, that's six votes on the Supreme Court. And Leonard Leo chose five of them for their ideological purity. Right? And, and to me, that is really striking. And it, it's a marker of the crusade that I am talking about because he chose them for their crusader ideology. I love that word crusade. And I know a lot of listeners may think that's a harsh word for what's going on. It is not. If anything, it might be an understatement. Let's go to first principles because you are definitely a student, an expert on the religion clauses. There are two, (laughs) although today there's only one. But in theory, there are two. There is um, the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. And of course, a lot has been written about both. What is your, if you're on the Supreme Court, if you were a Supreme Court justice, how would you view those clauses? Some people think they have tension between them. Let's talk about first principles. What do they allow? What do they prohibit? And what are they intended to do, in your opinion? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I think I think the religion clauses are, are really meant to work together uh, to protect religious freedom and to ensure the separation of church and state. Uh, there is no freedom of religion without a government that's free from religion, I like to say. And and I think that, and this is something I try to get at in American Crusade, that religious freedom questions are not that hard. I actually think that in most of the time, they're, they're, oh, we overcomplicate them. They're not always simple. And then sometimes they can be a little bit complicated, but more, I actually think they're more often than not emotionally fraught, uh, you know, especially in cases that, for instance, you know, involve children. Uh, But Mm -hmm. in their push to weaponize religious freedom, I I think the Crusaders have done a remarkable job at misleading and confounding many Americans, and even academics, about where we draw the legal lines on these founding principles. Uh, So while they may not raise necessarily simple, I I really don't think they're very hard either. And I do this at the beginning of the book, and I try to break it down without legalese, without getting into the the tests and the levels of scrutiny. I wanted to, this book is written for anybody to pick up and understand. And I can, by the way, so, I can second that. This book is absolutely accessible and interesting to the experts. I consider myself kind of an expert on this stuff. Um, and a lay person who would find this book easily accessible and really interesting. Go ahead, sorry. Well, thank you. No, I, pr- I really appreciate that. You know, I, I, we lawyers sometimes love to sound like lawyers, so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to turn that off. I try to, yeah. So I'm glad to hear that. So, I mean, the first line that I draw is between action and belief, right? Your, your right to believe is absolute, but your right to act on that belief is not. Uh, and, you know, one of the examples that, that, that we unfortunately see is, you know, pe- parents hearing God tell them to kill their children. They are free to believe that, but the civil law clearly can step in and prevent them from acting on that belief. At, at least so far, at belief. least so far in this country. At least so far, <laughs> right? So, so, so belief is unlimited, but action is limited. And, and that brings us then to the second line which is, okay, well, where is it permissible for the government to step in? And I think the answer here is also pretty simple. It's where the rights of other people begin, right? Your, your right to swing your fist ends at the other person's nose. Your right to swing your religion ends where the rights of others begin also. Uh, and, and historically, that is where we've really drawn this line. And what we're seeing right now is an attempt to say, no, 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 my right to act on my religious belief is unlimited, at least if it happens to be a conservative Christian belief. And then the the third line that I draw is that line that separates church and state. Uh, And and I actually, I love thinking about this line because there has been, I think that is probably where 
we have all fallen down in figuring out exactly how to describe and talk about that line and, and what it is meant to do. You know, one of, one of the, my favorite quotes um, is Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist 69. Uh, he said that the, he's comparing the king and the president. Uh, and he's saying, you know, one is the head of a church and the other has no particle of spiritual jurisdiction. Right. I, I think that that's such a nice way of putting it. We, our government does not have any power when it comes to religion. And when we have members of the government or government bodies uh, exercising their religion and augmenting that exercise with their state power, it's an abuse of power. Uh, just as it would be if they were, uh, you know, for instance, fundraising for their political campaigns using their, their public office or sexually harassing uh, one of their staffers if they were doing that in their official capacity. Right. This, these are simple, easy lines to draw. And I think we've done a really bad job, particularly online. Well, let, let, me, let me pause you right there. Yeah, go ahead. Let me pause sure. right there just because. Um, so uh, this is actually what's going to be my last question, but we'll, we'll put it up all the way <laughs> to the front. So. You say that, and I have sympathy for that. And so, for example, the cases you and I would agree – I said it's going to be a rally, maybe not. The cases you and I would agree on are the cross cases on public property, the Ten Commandments that are, that are displayed in courthouses. We, I would agree with you all of those things violate the Establishment Clause. Where I think it gets difficult and where I think Justice Brennan even had a really hard time – and Justice Brennan was, I think, a, 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 a very important – fighter for religious freedom and liberty the way you and I see it. Um, in God, we trust on coins. Let's just start right there. You're a Supreme Court justice. What do you do with in God, we trust on coins? I mean, I, I think that's pretty clearly a violation. I mean, that is the government using its power to express a religious belief and, and, and then adopting it later as a national motto, tying that religious belief to your citizenship in some way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, I think there are there are certainly simpler and easier examples that we can use to agree Hold on, let's start there because I think Justice, well, I, Justice Brennan no, did agree. say in a footnote that those kinds of ceremonial deism, is what he called it, I think, yeah. are, are kind of inevitable. And, you know, I think he thought the quarters institution would lose a lot of credibility if it struck them down. And I don't I don't think they're inevitable. If I think if the court held that line clearly and concisely, I think you would see a lot of those recede. Uh, and I, I do also want to point out in the first book I wrote, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, I get into exactly how we arrived at this on that phrase on our coins and in our national motto. And if, if you look back at that history, it is a deliberate attempt by a small group of Christians trying to impose their religion on the entire country and using the civil war to do so when the country was distracted. Now, one of the people involved was also trying to get Jesus Christ added to the preamble of the constitution <laughs> nice. at the time. Right. So, I mean, th this, it wasn't an innocuous attempt to just acknowledge this, this ceremonial theism that we hear about, which is also a misnomer, by the way, right. It's, it's actually ceremonial theism, right. If you're trusting in God, that's not a, that's not a deistic God. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's more theism. So it, it is a little bit of a misnomer there. Um, and, I, the, the courts have upheld it because for similar reasons to the, what they did with the Bladensburg Cross, right? They said, well, you know, this has lost all religious meaning through rote repetition. And, and to me, that's, that's just, that can't be true, first of all. And imagine what the response would be if the court said something similar for praying the rosary 
or or John 3.16, right? I'm sorry, this has been repeated so much that it's lost all religious meaning. The, the outcry No, but there's, a difference, a, but there's a difference between... Brennan saw... I'm sorry to interrupt. There's a difference between in God we trust and in a Christian God we trust. There is a difference between those. Or, or it, in other words, when you say John 3.16, you're referring to a specific passage in a specific Bible. All Brennan was willing... Brennan would have struck all those things down. What, what he was willing to say was references to a generic God, or gods probably, but anyway, generic God, those yeah. are not as troubling. And I don't think that is a color, that is a credible line to draw, Okay, right? You are, you are using the power of the government to broadcast a religious message. That is the purpose. And, uh, you know, I mean, O'Connor talked a lot about this, and she, I thought she did a really nice job um, in, in, on several instances, talking about how that alienates people who are not members of that in-group. Uh, and it's this, you're drawing a line that's including more people when you get into the difference between a generic God versus an explicitly Christian God, but you're still excluding anybody who is not a monotheist. Uh, and, and I think too, at the time, we know that they were talking about a Christian God. I right. mean, this was actually yeah. proposed by a guy named Mark Watkinson, who was a Christian preacher. Right? Yeah, yeah, He's no, the I one know. who proposed that. And just so, you so, haven't I mentioned mean, it, but this was in the 1950s. It wasn't 1786 or something. I mean, this was... It was, it was, it was, so the first time it was added to our coins or proposed was 1863. Uh, and then it was adopted as the national motto and added to the paper money in the 1950s when we also saw uh, the, the National Day of Prayer adopted. Um, we saw under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance. We saw the prayer room put into the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and this wave of kind of Christian nationalism crashed over the country. And this is one of the other things that I think is really, really important about these seemingly small ceremonial deism violations of the Constitution is that they are always used and pointed to by the courts in our common law system to justify additional violations. And, and not just by the courts, but also by waves of future Christian nationalists. And I actually um, was asked to testify, submit written testimony to the January 6th committee um, about the role that Christian nationalism played in that insurrection. And one of the things that I pointed out in that is that in God we trust, and these phrases actually played a remarkable role in justifying uh, in the minds of these attackers, their ideology. Christian nationalism provided the permission structure that allowed Americans to attack the beating heart of our democracy and believe that they were doing that in the name of patriotism. So what, one, one, last, one, last, let me just, yeah. one, one last question about the Establishment Clause in this yeah. context, then we'll move on to, I think, a much more important issues. Mm-hmm. So things like the Supreme Court itself has a whole bunch of historical secular things on its walls, and it has mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments on its walls. That has to mm-hmm. go? Yeah, the, the, well, the, well, the lawgivers and things like yeah. that. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, again, you know, harder questions and and not as easy to to talk about uh, abuses of power there. And again, I, like, I, I do think that that conceiving of it to back out for a second, as opposed to get to bu- get bogged sure. down in the minutiae. Right. Like uh, to, to conceive of the, 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 the violation of a separation of church and state as an abuse of power, I think, would be really useful. And it would have struck down in God we trust much earlier on in our history where it wouldn't be, you know, now mired in this, this <laughs> history and tradition that the court so reveres now. Um, I mean, so think about just something very simple, like, like a citizen wanting to pray. You are free to pray all you want. That is religious freedom. You can pray on public property. That's religious freedom too. But you don't get to broadcast that prayer over a government 
public address system, right? Then you are using the power of the government to augment your personal religious belief. And I don't think it matters whether it's a group of individual legislators who are trying to augment their personal religious belief or not. Uh, it is a question of using, it is a question of personal capacity or official capacity. Uh, you know, uh, it is, so it's, it, to my mind, it's an abuse of power when you have officials promoting or imposing their religion using that public power. Uh, and I think, I think if we reconceive of the separation of church and state in, those way, in that way, it might help answer a lot more of these questions than we currently have. So speaking of abuses of power, um, <laughs> uh, when let's, let's talk about one of the big cases last term. We're going to talk about both, but let's talk about one of the big ones, the, uh, the praying coach case out of Washington mm-hmm. State. Um, I screamed this as loud as I could prior to that case, and no one, as usual, no one listened to me. Um, <laughs> but my point was this coach was living in Florida, taking care of a sick father 3,000 miles away from his home. And there was simply no evidence he was going to return, no matter what happened in the case. It also turns out, I didn't even know this, that he really was never fired. He was on paid leave, yet Justice Alito kept saying he was fired, I believe. So I, I, so I have two questions about this case. One is, this is, the last, this is breaking news, like last couple of days. Um, how surprised are you that, that the court really, I mean, we knew the court distorted the facts, but distorted the facts this much even for the court, and everyone knows my view on this, but even for the court was pretty terrible. And two, shouldn't this have been a really easy case in any plausible world? I, I, I agree on both those points. Um, the To me, the what the court did with the facts in this case are just, it, it is so harrowing to see. I mean, it, they misrepresented government prayers directed at I mean, it, let's just back up for a second, because the Ninth Circuit warned essentially about what was going to happen here uh, and even warned the Supreme Court justices uh, about the fact that one side in this case was spinning a, quote, deceitful narrative. Right. Right. I mean, so you have a three a judge on a three uh, on the three judge panel saying that the facts in the record utterly belie the coach's contention that this prayer was personal and private. Um, and then you have uh, one, one of the judges taking another judge, Judge O'Scanlan, to task for succumbing to the siren song of a deceitful narrative, in this case, spun by counsel for the appellant, to the effect that Joseph Kennedy, a Bremerton High School football coach, was disciplined for holding silent private prayers. That narrative is false. Now, I mean, You've been doing this for a long time. Have you seen language like that from a court smacking down the, the factual residue? It's I mean, pretty I, rare. I, I, pretty rare. And if it, if that happened to me, I would go hide my head <laughs> in the sand and I would question my my career choices for a long time. Yeah. And instead, the, the lawyers at First Liberty Institute appealed to the Supreme Court, and they didn't they didn't try to change their narrative. They stuck to it, and the court adopted. That narrative. So, so, so explain, explain to the audience. Wholesale. Explain to the audience why it wasn't a situation of a high school football coach praying privately, you know, uh, in his free time. Yeah. So I mean, and, and I, I, you could just go look at Justice Sotomayor's dissent. She included three photographs yeah. of these prayers, which which is also remarkable. And so these prayers are occurring at the fifty yard line, 
right after the games are over, as the teams are on the field. And we know for a fact, it is in the record, uh, that students felt pressured to pray with the coach. I mean, that, that is clear. And of course, of course they felt pressured to pray of with course. the coach, right? You're, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, this, this is the whole point, uh, of, first of all, of, of having these prayers. But we, we've been, this is well-trod ground in the Establishment Clause territory. We know that high school kids feel pressure to join in uh, to things like this. I mean, if anybody's ever seen a teen movie, this is pretty <laughs> obvious. Right. So the, the prayers are occurring at the 50-yard line. Students are joining in. And then it becomes this huge fight later on um, when after First Liberty Institute gets involved. There's actually a moment where it really looks like this is going to be able to be resolved amicably. Uh, the school district time and time again tried to say, look, coach, we, we want you to be able to, to do your prayers if this is part of your religion. We, we're willing to accommodate them. What we can't have is the students feeling pressured to pray. So we got to figure it out so that none of that is happening. Well, well, plus, we'll they're, they're in his care at that moment in time. They're not yeah, released from school yet. They're still in his, of course. In his care. And, he, and he's mixing in, uh, at this point, he's mixing in, you know, post-game pep talks. Uh, with the prayers, you know, holding up helmets from the team and, and having all the kids take a knee. So, I mean, you, you if you're missing that, you are opting out of your team event, this crucial team moment. And and we saw actually uh, some of those students talked about the division that they felt on the team as a result. There was uh, one amicus brief in particular that was really remarkable on that count. Um, so, so we know what was happening here. And if you if you read Justice Gorsuch's opinion here, it's just oh. Well, this was a moment of private prayer. He wasn't on duty. He could have been texting or ordering food. You know, I mean, it, it is, it's absurd. Well, and, and now I mean, we know. Tell the audience what's happening next, what we've learned the last few days. So uh, Justice, uh, excuse me, Coach Kennedy, um, who I, I think it's also crucial that you, what you pointed out. So I'm going to touch on that first. He up and moved to Florida in the middle of this litigation. Uh, before the, the Supreme Court was asked to review the case, but he and his attorneys didn't notify any of the courts that he up and moved. Um, so first of all, he wasn't fired like any, like has been repeated. He was put on administrative leave. And he was put on administrative leave because during those on the field prayers, uh, eventually because he, he stood up and, you know, was, was going on Fox news and talking about this, people were rushing the field to join him in these prayers. He made it into this circus uh, you know, band members and cheerleaders were getting knocked over. Uh, the school district had to get in touch with the police department to actually have additional police uh, protect the field. And they had to do robocalls to tell people, you know, this is this is a safety issue. So the coach actually in this this religious freedom fight risked the health and safety of the children under his care. Right. So and, and every chance he gets, he refuses any accommodation. So eventually the school district says, hey, you know, we got to put you on administrative leave. And then just like every other coach, his contract expires at the end of the year, right? These They're just on contract for the season. And he never reapplied. So he, he wasn't fired. It's unbelievable. Um, it's unbelievable. Alito makes it sound yeah. like he was fired for this directly. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, up, he ups and moves to Florida in the middle of litigation. Well, no, in fairness, his, I think he was taking care of his sick father. I don't think it was a litigation thing. I think you, I think. No, it, it, it just happened in the middle of yeah. as the case was being yeah. litigated. I don't think it was related to, to litigation either. But the point being, the only thing, he, the only relief they asked for was to be reinstated. And this is a job that you make 
less than $5,000 a year. Uh, at, I mean, he's not going to commute back and forth from Florida to Bremerton, Washington to be the coach. And it turns out that he's not going to do that, right? right? Uh, so th- th- he's been on essentially the conservative celebrity speaking circuit. Um, the school district put out a statement saying, you know, we gave him all the the stuff, the the forms, the background check, all that stuff he needs to fill out to become a coach again. And uh, he never turned it in. Um, so he's he's not coaching. He had no intention um, of ever coming back. And this was, you know, Americans United represent the organization I work for, represented the school district of the Supreme Court. And we pointed this out to the Supreme Court. We, we filed a suggestion of mootness uh, and the court never dealt with it. Uh, if this guy moved to Florida and the only relief he wanted was to get put back on. I mean, the court should have should have punted. I believe his <laughs> lawyers know? actually I believe his lawyers wrote a letter saying his lawyers did say, I think that he was planning to return. I think they actually did. Yeah, I'm sorry. That. I'm sorry. The court, the court never addressed yeah. it is what I, is what yeah. I was trying but, to But, but yes. it does raise the question of that, that lawyer's letter. I, you know, I mean, I have all kinds of good faith questions about that letter. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have, I have those same questions throughout the litigation uh, with the way that they portrayed yeah. uh, the, the facts in this case. So, so uh, let me uh, ask I, you a I more can... important question. Um, sure. So, sure. Uh, um, about all this. And, and, I, and I've said this before on this podcast. My friend Corinna Lane at the University of Richmond, who is a wonderful law professor, wrote a fantastic law review article that, that might be as surprising a law review article as I've ever read in the, I believe it was Stanford, it may have been California, I always forget, where she said, if you look at social science data and just the things non-lawyers look at, that journalists look at and that kind of thing, the most controversial Supreme Court cases in history are not Dred Scott, Brown or even Roe, the most controversial cases in Supreme Court history were the two school prayer cases in the early 1960s, according to the data she amassed in terms of contemporaneous contemporaneous pushback, um, which is, I think, reflective of how strongly Americans feel about, sadly, about prayer in school. So if that caveat, and assuming she's correct, and I'm sure she is because she's a great law professor, um, do you think we're on the road here to the court reversing the cases that say teacher-led prayer in public schools are unconstitutional? I do think that is a very real possibility moving forward. I thought that was a real possibility in the coach case. Uh, I think the way that Americans United lawyers uh, argued that case helped prevent that from happening. But the reason I think it's it's possible uh, is because there will never be enough power and privilege to satisfy the crusaders. You know, I mean, when when they've successfully weaponized religious freedom in that concept, that really is only the beginning, because the point of that weapon is is to carry religious freedom into every other legal fight. And we you're seeing this happening a lot lately. Like, like right, think about public health measures and civil rights laws. But those are two areas where religious freedom trumping good citizenship was once unthinkable. Uh, but, you know, I mean, now it's quickly becoming the norm. And I, I show that in several chapters of American Crusade. Um, and and I, I also think that the license to harm others isn't going to end with discriminating against LGBTQ citizens. I think they're going to use that to reestablish white supremacy, something that I believe was made hauntingly clear in the oral arguments uh, at the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. They're going to bring religious freedom into every other area, and in, including some areas that we don't expect, like like perhaps voting rights. Okay, you scared me. Um, I, was hoping your, I was hoping your answer would be, well, it's really bad, but maybe not that bad. Um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, look, I, I think this court is drunk on power right now. 
Yeah. And and they, they have not been checked by the other two branches as our system was designed to do in any meaningful way. Right. Uh, so, and until that happens, I, I would not expect them to slow down. I mean, you know, to the extent that the fight between, there's a fight between, or a rift between Roberts and the other five ultra conservative justices, it's only, it's not a, it's not an ideological rift. It's only on how much conservative change can we impose on the country? Well, and it's not in these uh, cases. And it's not in, it's not in these cases. Roberts is on all yeah, fours yeah. in these cases. So um, exactly. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, um, you know what scares me the most, and I warned the audience at the outset this was going to be more of a kind of rally type thing. Than <laughs> um, here's what really scares me. Um, you know, I blog with Mike Dorf at Dorf on Law, and uh, his his wife just passed away in a very sad, tragic situation. And before she passed away, she wrote a series of columns for Dorf on Law about Justice Alito, and she was talking mostly about. The abortion case, of course, but she w- she talked about him generally, and I think she had him pegged in a in a way most law professors aren't willing to do, and I, and this is what I want to say to you, and I'm curious your reaction. My fear is that if you and I could get Alito in a room where we really had his full attention, and we said to him, "Listen, they lied. This coach was never going to return. We know he wasn't fired. You really did misrepresent." the facts, and we could prove it to him. And now he's doing the, the, the Fox News religious speaker talk show circuit. Would you do anything different? Would you change a syllable in your opinion? My answer is he would get all huffy and say, you guys have been lying for years, and he wouldn't have one minute of regret. Do you agree with that? I do. Yeah. And I, I, tr- I think I make that clear in American Crusade. I mean, I... I don't think you can understand what is happening with religion and the law with our Supreme Court right now without reading this book. So many people, and I think so, I think lawyers in particular, you know, we've been taught, uh, you are probably leading the charge against this. Um, But, you know, we really have to unshackle our minds from the belief that the Supreme Court is an impartial arbiter of truth and justice. Yeah. We really have to, I mean, the crusade that I'm talking about in this book actually depends upon people believing that myth. But but McConnell and Trump and Leo, they cheated in pact and stole the courts to put collaborators in place, not because they would administer justice even-handedly, but because they wouldn't. Right? So, you know, I, American Crusade is not like a normal book. It's not a law book. It's an attempt to expose, it's an attempt, I'm trying to expose this attempt to warp and redefine our law. And one of the things that I show as a, as a theme throughout is that the justices are eager and ready to take these cases. They want to hear these cases. They will push aside procedure. And I mean, like what we were talking about with the Kennedy case, like ignoring the fact that the case is moot so that they can decide these cases. And they are deciding almost every religious freedom case that comes their way in favor of conservative Christians. And you you read this and you stack up case upon case upon case, and you, you have to reach the simple conclusion that this Supreme Court wants to decide these cases. And, and that really should scare us. And, and as further receipts for that, <clears throat> this has been a great source of frustration with me, with my colleagues. It really has, my, my friends in the academy, it really has been. When you say that they'll ignore procedural requirements, Kennedy isn't even half as bad as the line of cases we're about to talk about under the free exercise clause, the first of which was Trinity Lutheran, which is a case where by the time of the Supreme Court oral argument, 
there was there not only was the the case was moot, it wasn't ripe, there was no standing, and it wasn't even adversarial. What happened in yep. this? I'm going to rant for a second here, if you don't mind. It's my please podcast. do, please do. Um, <laughs> um, so in in that case, Missouri has this constitutional provision that like 30 plus states have that no public money will be given to religious organizations. They create this great program, really great program, using recycled tires to make playgrounds safer and I think better for the environment is my understanding in terms of using recycled tires. They say, but under our constitution, we can't uh, give these grants to religious schools. By the time, and, and, and both lower courts uphold that, and then by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, there's a new governor who says, from now on, religious institutions will be able to receive grants under this program. The plaintiff's school did not seek damages, nor could they have sought damages. They simply wanted an injunction treating them the same as everybody else. They didn't ask for the previous year's grant, something they could not have gotten. So by the time they got to the Supreme and they agreed in a letter that the case should be heard anyway. So I'm a federal courts professor as well as a con law professor. And I think, and if I'm wrong about this, somebody write me privately and I will publicly apologize. I think it is the only case in American history where both every party to the case agreed on every issue in the case including jurisdiction. We have a lot of mootness cases where that they sound moot, but the court says, well, one of the parties might do bad things again. But in those cases, one of the parties says to the court, don't hear the case. So you have some adversity. In this case, they agreed on every single thing. And Article 3 limits, I'm ranting here, the court did cases and controversies. Oh, was there a case of controversy there? Am I missing something? Uh- there absolutely was not. And I get into this. I can even add a little more seasoning to, okay. to or maybe a little more fuel to your fire, but yeah. a better way to say that. I mean, not only did they agreed on everything, they also agreed that there was no establishment clause violation in that case, which the court just said, okay, fine, right. we'll accept that. Right. Uh, read the dissent, read the dissent on that point, because <laughs> Sotomayor's got a beautiful line. Uh, but it, it's the new the new Missouri attorney general who took office uh, after that election. Um, it was four months before the oral argument in the Supreme Court. And that was a guy named Josh Hawley, who people are no oh doubt my God. familiar with. Jesus. He actually worked on this case on the church's side. Jesus. He argued that the grant program unfairly discriminated against <laughs> religious organizations. Uh, he, he wrote a brief with his wife, both are former clerks of Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, and, you know, I mean, before this, he worked for a crusader for the Beckett Fund, uh, even helping on the Hobby Lobby case. Right. So, I mean, this is it, it, it's so much worse. And so, yes, by the time of oral argument, ev- the crusaders control both sides of the case. Everybody agrees that and this is, I think, an important uh, point too. Um, the the church in this instance, it, the playground was actually a part of a Christian ministry. Uh, and I, I really lay this out very clearly in the chapter on Trinity. You do. In American Absolutely. Crusade. Do. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so we're not talking about just funding a playground, which is exactly what uh, ADF Alliance Defending Freedom argued in the case. They, they did a really fantastic job of, again, muddying the waters and about what this case was truly about. This case was about can the government tax citizens and force them to support a Christian ministry with those taxpayer funds? This is the note. It's Got a bunch of different names, but I call it the no funding principle. And this, so, this goes I, back. Sorry, that got the, garbled. Say it again loudly. I'm sorry. You got, you I call like, it the, the no the no funding principle. Yeah. And this goes back. I mean, this goes back to the founding 
of our country, right? Like Thomas Jefferson said that to tax a citizen uh, and, and take their money and give it to a religion they don't agree with is, quote, sinful and tyrannical. Right? I mean, the, the, this principle is one of the earliest that we have. Uh, it is bedrock when it comes to separation of church and state. The taxing power of the government cannot be used to force you to support a religion that is not your own. Uh, and again, it goes kind of to the abuse. So let me ask you a hard question about, about that, just so people, sure. so, so I'm just not playing just one side completely. Um, sure. We do tax people to provide police and fire protections for churches, synagogues, mosques, et cetera. And by the way, I think we should. So what's your answer to that? I mean, so to the, I mean, we, we do that for the community, right? We do that. We do that for everybody, not right. just. Well, those. but, they, but actually, these you know, playgrounds were for well, everybody. I, 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 well, yeah, yes. But I had, I, you know, I had an, an enormous, um, it was probably, it probably ended up being 18 pages um, that I had to trim down to, a, 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 you know, a fine, uh, probably two paragraphs because that's the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the way your publisher works. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, I think I'm going to put that, um, put that out as a law review article. Um, I think that is, this is one of those things where I think it's a, it's a more emotionally fraught argument than anything else, right? Like we can be against suppressing crime across the board and against suppressing fire, which also threatens the community sure. across the board. Um, that, that's, that does not translate then into financially supporting um, a Christian ministry. And again, I, I, that's what they were asking for. They were asking for actual physical funds no, I agree. to flow into you, you are, I, I'm not, right, My point of the question really was, you are in favor, if a church is on fire, we should send the fire department. Yes. Yes, okay. Yes, 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 of course, yes. Okay. I want to make that clear. Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Um, no, but, no, it's okay. I, I think I'm going to have to do it as a law review because it, and it's fascinating. Actually, tracing, one of the things I do in this book is I trace a lot of these arguments back to their source, right. uh, which was really fun. Um, but I did, I did that there. And uh, it, it really, it's just, it's just fascinating how these things come up. And then because we are a commonwealth system, you know, they get, they get repeated and repeated and augmented and augmented without right. ever anybody going back to the original thing and looking anyway. Right. Yeah. That, by the way, you, 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 what you just said, it's a common law system where we don't go back to the original sources. It's an incredibly <laughs> astute, sophisticated sentence for a lot of reasons that I don't want to, I don't want to lose that in all of this. Um, you know, David Strauss, law professor at Chicago, is the most famous proponent of this idea that what we have is a co the Supreme Court is simply a common law court pretending to be something else, effectively. Um, and um, this term, in almost all the cases, the the court didn't really use originalism; it used its own doctrine and history long after the founding to make its horrific decisions in virtually every case. Yet claiming to be originalist somehow, and that disconnect is absurd. And I, I just, you threw away that line, it's a common law court. You and I agree on that. If Alito or Thomas or Roberts heard that, they would say, no, we're not. You know, it's something else. How frustrating is that? It's incredibly frustrating. And, and, and the history and tradition uh, that the court puts forward as gospel truth is, um, it's often just, just absolutely appalling. You know, my, my first book, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, is a lot about the, the founding of the United States and the, and the history involved in the creation of our constitution. And really what I'm trying to do in that book is, is 
completely destroy the disinformation that underlies the Christian nationalist identity. And it is a lot of the same things that you see popping up in Alito's opinions, for instance, in the Bladensburg Cross case. Um, we, we saw a lot of it actually in, in the Marsh versus Chambers decision in 1983, uh, where you get these really one-sided, uh, cherry-picked versions of history, law office history, used to support uh, and and advocate for you know the, the rescinding of rights. I mean, the, the Dobbs opinion is is, is a remarkable example of this. Um, so it, it is it's beyond I think frustrating. I, I and you can see you can even get into it with the textualism with this court too. Right. Uh, but I, I'll save that. Well, I, you, <laughs> you mentioned Marsh versus Chambers for the non law professor or maybe non lawyer audience for this. That's a case where for the first time the court upheld legislative prayer. Um, in Nebraska, was it? I think Nebraska. Um, Correct. But it, I want to make a point about that case. Um, in addition to having a very strong dissenting opinion that reads, I think, very well, Michael McConnell, who is the leading proponent in America, academic proponent, of constitutionally required free exercise exemptions, which you and I both disagree with completely, even Michael McConnell, who I'm not sure how he feels about that case on the merits, but even Michael McConnell said about that case, there's no law in that case. It's not, he, said, he said the reasoning of that case, leaving aside the result, violated the rule of law. And when Michael McConnell is saying that about a case that comes out in a way that he probably favors, we know something is really, really adrift. And, 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 I, and I, by the way, I applaud Michael for being honest about you know, the lack of reasoning in that opinion. I agree. And I, th- I do think the dissent is, is quite excellent. In me me too. As well. All right. So we, we're, we're getting close to the end here, but we have to, <laughs> we have to talk about parochial school aid, religious school aid, because you were talking about the no aid principle. And this one is really personal to me. And it's personal to me in a way that is related to your organization. Um, when I was at the Department of Justice, I, well, I said to my friends the night before I went to the Bush Department of Justice, I won't work on any cases involving abortion, and I won't work on any cases involving church and state, because my views on, I'm, I'm a separationist, and my, and my views on abortion are well known. And I said, I'm not worried about it, because I'm going to be a lowly trial attorney, and there's no way I'm going to get any cases, you know, involving those issues, so mm-hmm. I'm not worried. And I wanted the experience of practicing constitutional law, so I could teach constitutional law, which was always my goal. Um, my first day, I get this huge establishment clause case involving parochial school aid to, um, well, it's a national program in the Department of Education, schools all over the country. My case was in San Francisco. There were cases in New Orleans, New York, and one other place at the time, I think St. Louis at the time. Um, and what the federal government was clearly doing was unconstitutional. Um, I wasn't even at the time, at the, at the time, because at, well, you tell the audience, I had that case in 1989, 1990. At that moment in time, what was the law about parochial school aid by in, in, in a number of Supreme Court cases? I mean, it was basically can't do this. Right. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be the short version. Yeah. Uh, we can't we can't fund religious education and indoctrination, and those two things are often indistinguishable. Uh, and I, I, again, this goes back to the the basic idea that it is it's both as Jefferson said, sinful and tyrannical to tax citizens, to use the taxing power of the government, to take money out of a citizen's pocket and then deposit it into a church house of worship or religious school that is not their own. And this uh, fe- and this federal program called t- Chapter 2 at the time um, gave all kinds of equipment, materials, and things to parochial schools in pretty clear violation of various 
prior cases. And in fact, I didn't even think we could make a non-Rule 11 argument about it. But one of my co-counsel did come up with what I thought was a passable, non-frivolous argument, though it was very weak. I only worked on the case because my boss said, I said, I don't want to work on the case. My first day in the job was terrible. And I said, I really apologize for this, but I know this is a terrible thing to do on your first day. I just told my friends last night, this is the only case I wouldn't work on except for the abortion cases, which was at the time Russ versus Sullivan is what was percolating in the lower courts. Anyway, he said, fly to San Francisco, see the schools. If you still feel the same way, come back and, and, and we'll get you out of the case. So I did that a couple of weeks later. My view of private schools was very, very limited at the time. I grew up on Long Island, and to me, all the all private schools were rich and wealthy and and that kind of thing. And and I'm not I'm not you know this, you're going to say I just gave in, and that's fair. But what I saw were uh, Catholic schools in really bad areas of San Francisco taking kids off the street. These were not rich schools by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, they were very poor schools, and just trying to give ethnic kids, kids of color. Um, a decent education. The federal program was helping it. Um, I wouldn't vote for the program, but I decided I don't, I didn't, and to this day, I think, you and I would disagree on this because my view of judicial review is much more limited than yours. I think the Establishment Clause probably allows that as long as it's not divertible aid. But in any event, the only issue was, so that's my excuse. That's my, that's my feeding my conscience there. Um, they were, they, they were schools doing good things for some troubled kids. But in any event, the only issue was, did this aid violate the Establishment Clause, right? And, and there, yeah. right, again, I come, I come back to the power that is being exercised okay. by the government. And they're, they're taking money from citizens. They're using a secular power to take money from citizens right. and turn around and give it to a religious organization. But my, my point uh, was, is, there was no free exercise issue in the case. It was simply, no. does the Establishment Clause allow this aid, Right. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think I, there's there's so much in, in your story that is that is fascinating to me okay. too, from from a history standpoint. Uh, and okay. you know, I mean, like, uh, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go all the way back because you know, what, and we're see, you're actually seeing this with the Yeshiva University stuff that's happening yeah. right now. Uh, I don't know if uh, well, it's probably too much to get into, but uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw what was happening there. But one of the one of the, pe- the people involved said, you know, this is exactly what they did in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, when they they integrated the public pools, then they closed all the pools down. But it, it, it this this fight for public funding of religious schools is is newish, and really it dates back to Brown versus Board and to the attempt to desegregate our public schools. Right. And you saw a version of white flight from those public schools. And I have a, I have a number of chapters on this in American Crusade because the, the history is so integral. And when you have a Supreme Court saying any history of hostility means you have to strike down these programs. Um, and, and here, the, the history is, is very, very clear. Um, you know, freedom of choice, school vouchers, all, all of these really date back to the attempt to desegregate our public schools. And they ought they ought to be tainted, in, at least if the Supreme Court is going to be consistent uh, with uh, that that history, uh, and they ought to be struck down. But of course, this this court hasn't done that anyway. Um, it, it, in terms of is there a religious freedom question? No, of course, of course, there's not. Um, and, but that has been, as I think you want, you are trying to get into, yes. completely turned on its head yes. in the last few years. Yes, yeah. in the last five years, if you read Sotomayor's Excellence. So. Yeah. So, so the point I was the point I want you to run with is this: 
So uh, I litigated that case in district court. Um, the yeah. Department of Justice litigated in the Court of Appeals. There was another case in the Fifth Circuit, the Helms case, that have same issues that eventually went to the Supreme <clears throat> Court. And eventually the court reversed like 27 other cases and held the Establishment Clause does not bar generally available aid that's available to private secular schools given to religious schools. And I don't want to have that debate right now. Um, that's an Establishment Clause issue. I litigated my case, uh, one of the interveners, but who's really the lead lawyer other than me, because I was for the Department of Justice, I was very young, was the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference. And this man was devoted his life to the crusade, as you would say. Um, and even he never dreamed in his wildest fantasies that a parochial school aid case would be decided as a free exercise case. In other yeah. words, what the Supreme Court eventually held was states and federal government. If you want, if you decide on your own to give aid to religious schools, you can do that on your own without violating the Establishment Clause with a little bit of fuzziness with some with an O'Connor suitor kind of, you know, five, four. <laughs> but, but that was the general rule. Tell, tell the people what happened next. <laughs> so we've, we've had a number of cases on this in the last few years, the most recent one being Carson versus Macon. And, and, and people, I think, forget about this case out of Maine uh, because the court, the court abolished reproductive freedom on a Friday and right. they handed down the Carson <laughs> versus Macon decision on the Tuesday before. Right. Uh, you know, and it really, they destroyed one of our nation's first religious freedoms, our, our, that right to be free from the compelled financial support of religion. Um, and, you know, and so Maine has in its constitution uh, that basically public education is a right. Uh, it is essential to the preservation of rights and liberties of the people, is what they said. Um, and then it's up to towns to do that. But Maine is a pretty rural state. Some areas are so sparsely populated that it, they, it, they can't actually support uh, constructing a, a school building, you know, the actual buildings support running uh, and constructing a school. So they set up a program to educate those rural students who don't have access to a public school. It's not really a voucher program or a school choice program. The goal, as the Maine Supreme Court put it, is uh, for students to receive a free public education, not to guarantee children a free education at any public or private school of their choice, right? So the whole point is we want you to have a public education. You know, education is really important for a functioning democracy. Um, and and essentially, I won't get into too many of the details, um, but the, the school that was going, you could either send the kids to another public school or a private school that was non-sectarian. And that language uh, is, there's a lot of debate in our Supreme Court about that language and what that actually meant. Um, and this use status distinction, but essentially the court said um, that that requirement violated the religious freedom of, of parents and schools. It's unbelievable. And I think... One thing, I mean, this is this did not get talked about, and I think you in particular and your listeners will appreciate this uh, because it really shows how far this court has has fallen. Uh, so that that case was brought by the Institute for Justice, uh, which was you know this Coke created uh, crusader that has uh, really close ties. By the way, to not Coca Cola, the Coke brother. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, with, yeah, Coke with a K. Thank yeah. you. Um, and you know, I mean, really, well, I'm in Georgia, the, so I have to be careful not to stain Coke too much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you really do. <laughs> Uh, but you know they have they have close ties to or the founder uh, Clint Bollock had close ties to the Thomases, uh, Ginny Thomas when she was emailing the Arizona State Legislature uh, legislators, uh, she was emailing uh, her friend uh, Mrs. Bollock uh, who's married to Clint Bollock who's an Arizona Supreme Court justice. It's all very 
problematic. Um, but this was not the first time that the Crusaders had challenged the non-sectarian requirement in Maine, including the Institute for Justice. They brought this exact same challenge to the exact same non-sectarian requirement four times in the previous two and a half decades. And four times they lost. Twice they asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review those case, to review that case, and both times the court declined. But that was before the court itself had called for this crusade and before Leonard Leo had packed the court. Uh, so, I mean, you have the, these two cases in the 90s, uh, parallel in state and federal court going all the way up, rejected all the way. Um, that's uh, American Center for Law and Justice run by Jay Sekulow and Institute for Justice. And then again, um, after in the, in the early 2000s, you have the, the court bringing those cases, excuse me, you have the Crusaders bringing those cases to court again and again, losing at every step. But apparently a change in court personnel uh, changes the Constitution. So yeah, well, that's where we are now. anyone following me on Twitter knows that I, I, I haven't mentioned Judge Posner, uh, retired Judge Posner yet, and I always do once in podcasts, so I will say this once again, as, as he once brilliantly asked rhetorically, if changing judges changes law, do we even know what law is? And... Um, we went from a world, in, in about 30 years, we went from a world where the Establishment Clause prohibited aid to religious schools, to most aid except textbooks, prohibited aid, secular textbooks, prohibited aid to religious schools, to a world where the Free Exercise Clause requires aid mm-hmm. to religion. In three decades, it's not, it's not even that long a I can't even talk about it rationally. It makes me so angry. I have one last, this has been awesome. I have one, one last question for you, but it's a thorny one, okay? Sure. This is the most controversial thing I've probably asked on this podcast in 71 podcasts. So hold on, everybody. Um, I have said publicly on several occasions, and I've been castigated for it, Judge Amy Coney Barrett who I knew a little bit before she was nominated, and I think is a very nice person, for the record. Um, My understanding, and she's never commented on it, but she certainly never denied it. She belongs to what I think a lot of people would call a cult um, because it is an offshoot, I think, of very conservative right-wing Catholicism I believe the group she belongs to speaks in tongues, and I believe the group she belongs to has views about women that are reprehensible. Do I have any of that wrong? No. Okay. I find it deeply problematic <laughs> that someone who, who belongs to that kind of group gets a seat on the United States Supreme Court. And when I say that, I get killed, attacked, called a bigot, and everything else in the world. I have nothing against people of faith being on the Supreme Court. Nothing. In fact, I would be embarrassed. I would, but we're not talking about a person. We are talking about a person of faith. But we're talking about a particular type of faith that is so extreme that I don't understand how this happened. <laughs> Do I have any of that wrong? No, I mean, the way I think that we need to think about these questions is Article 6 prohibits religious tests for public office. And I'm in favor. I'm I'm in favor. And of course you are. But it also requires uh, people who are going to assume a public office to take an oath of office, that that they uphold the Constitution 
first and above all else. And that's particularly important for justices who are interpreting the Constitution. So the collision here is between her personal religious beliefs and what the Constitution actually says and means and requires. And the question that we need to ask is, can you set aside those religious beliefs and decide in, in, as the Constitution requires if those two things are in conflict? And, and the problem with Amy Coney Barrett is that she has written before that she does not think judges should do that. Well, maybe shouldn't. Maybe should. It was, it was a little more ambiguous than that. But OK, go ahead. But my point is that that makes it perfectly fair game for us to talk about and ask about. And in fact, I think we have a duty to do that. And senators, especially on the Judiciary Committee, have a duty to ask that. And it doesn't impinge on her religious freedom if she has identified that conflict and said that it could be an issue. Um, You know, and, you know, I mean, you can go back. I know people, and you, you mentioned this earlier, that this really is a crusade. Right. This is a war of conquest. It's not of land, uh, but the Crusaders are looking to conquer our Constitution and to remake it in their image. And, you know, uh, when Pope Urban II launched his first crusade, the crowd cheered, Deus fault, Deus fault, God wills it, God wills it. And then he emphasized in his sermon uh, that the Turks, quote unquote, Turks had attacked Christians and had devastated the kingdom of God. And so he's making this an us versus them. And that, that really is what this crusade is about. So back then they had the medieval crusaders had to drop their plowshares, strap on their swords, and they had to march to the Holy land to retake and rebuild the kingdom of God, right? Conquest. And, and the message that Amy Coney Barrett had for the new lawyers uh, at Notre Dame law school in 2006 was not all that dissimilar. She said that being a lawyer is but a means to an end. And that end is building the kingdom of God. And and I want to, and I want to, I want to stop you right there real quick. Yes. She said that. Um, And I want to be clear that I don't know what your religious beliefs are, and I'm not asking. But if you publicly, over and over and over again, identified as an atheist and someone who is um, whose religion is non-religion, and I do think committed atheists have a religion in that sense, I I, I do. Um, But that was your life work, and you said uh, law was a tool to promote atheism. I don't think I'd want you in the Supreme Court, to be honest, unless yeah. you were very and, and fair. That would be that would be perfectly fair. Yeah. Right. And I, I will do, I will take issue with the idea that atheism is a religion. It's, okay. It's a way religion. It's a religion the way like off is a TV channel or abstinence <laughs> is a sex position. You no, know, but bald is a hair color, maybe. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the point is, if you make your personal beliefs an issue, uh, especially regarding your ability to uphold the oath of office that you are going to take, then we then we all have a duty to investigate that and discuss it. Uh, and of course, of course, people of faith and believers can make perfectly wonderful judges. Yes. I mean, we've, we've got plenty of examples of that throughout our history, and nobody was suggesting otherwise. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about these issues and that they have to be taken off the table altogether when the nominees themselves have made it an issue. Agreed. Okay, so we're going to end this with a couple of shameless plugs. Um, First, if you (laughs) you want to hear more about the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing scandal about asking her about her religion, Jeff Stone and I wrote an op-ed for The New York Times. You can find it very easily where we show that 
although Senator um, Feinstein might have asked the question a little bit inappropriately, it was absolutely, a, in substance, a fair topic to go into, which is what you're saying. But more importantly, both of Andrew's books, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, and most recently, American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. These are really important books. That's why I blurbed the second one. I, I'm really, really glad you're doing this work. I hate to, I'm not overstating this when I say America needs you right now. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for your thank work. You. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.